2: economic indicators who knows where this is going to end
0: up to understand the economy you have to understand human nature
2: this podcast is powered by acast
0: how you doing there it is david it is believe it or not i think we're going into week 5 of the lockdown it's the podcast we're trying to make sense of economics of financial markets of the world of politics And it's getting weirder and weirder. But I hope you're well. I hope you're all surviving. I hope you're not going too mad. And if you're doing the course, I hope you are finding it interesting. We are getting an enormous, enormous amount of interest. Hundreds and hundreds of people doing the course. Uh, This week, we will be doing Joseph Schumpeter, who I think is incredibly opposite for what's going on now. He's the guy who came up with the creative destruction idea that basically the economy is never at equilibrium, but it's always in a state of chaos and dynamism and change. So Shumpert is coming up on Thursday, so I hope you enjoy that. Meanwhile, on the line, I'm joined by your man, Mr. Davis. What is the crack, my man? How are you, Mac? Are you good? I'm very good. You exactly. see this cut of the hair? Oh, I'm loving the barnet. Okay, I'll tell you here, right? John now has got, just picture this, right? John <laughs> and I are not spring chickens. Okay, doke. We are well past our peak, but uh, sell by date. Last night on oh, the sell by date was years ago. We're actually we're actually like one of those you know they're trying to get old veg and kind of sell it for new. You know, pretend. Oh, sorry, stuck on that shelf. Yeah, that was- exactly, exactly. We are the classic example of new wine in old bottles. That's us. But last night I got a quick WhatsApp from John, and do you remember Joe Strummer in the Clash around the Rock the Casbah? era, maybe early 80s, maybe mid-80s, when The Clash went a little bit sort of disco and real punks decided that they'd gone. A man with a fantastic mohawk. The mohawk was outstanding, John.
2: It was, and so...
0: Why did you cut it off? Well... Because today I'm looking at him now, and it's gone.
2: Well, yesterday I decided that I was go mad. I was gone all BG. I was proper Barry Gibb with my hair.
0: Nothing wrong with Barry Gibb. I know. Look. Actually,
2: he wrote some of the best He's songs been. ever. Yeah. And you know what? Actually, something about the Bee Gees. They had number ones in more genres of music than anyone else. Are they you serious? Disco, I didn't know that. They would country. They would kind of rock. I mean, it was soft rock and stuff. But they had number ones in each of those genres. No one else has I actually didn't know done it.
0: They also had amazingly tight pants. But more interestingly... They had flares in the tight pants that you could hide a six pack up. <laughs> do you remember those sort of flares? Like, do you remember the, do, the Wrangler parallel? Six pack is stag. Exactly, and it was stag just right for enjoyment. Was the ad? <laughs> the elder lemons in the podcast community will substantiate that that the ad was stag just right for enjoyment. John and I started our um, teenage boozing on stag because it tasted like Sidona. Wasn't that it? That's exactly it. And all I remember about the beaches was they had pants that if you wanted to hide your six-pack of stag, the flares would cover them.
2: But anyway, so I was going all Barry Gibb on, on my head. So I decided I might as well have a bit of fun. So I decided, and you know, you're going a bit nuts. So I decided I might as well have a bit of fun. So, I challenged a few of my mates to sponsor me. So, they did for As I Am. So, I shaved off the head. I'm going to put it up on Twitter later so you can see it. And so, I left, Izzy did it, left with a massive Mohican. I saw it last night. Like, Joe Strummer. So, I woke up this morning and went, That's way too high, way too high. You know, so I trimmed it down.
0: There's a, there's a touch of the kind of... Do you remember the scum punks in Dublin? They used to live in a place called the Catacombs, which appeared yeah, in I Brendan did. Behan's Morsel yeah. Boy. And the Catacombs were where the scum punks lived, which was a squat on the corner of Leeson Street. And they had fantastically good mohawks. Yeah. I remember in the time when you wanted to have a mohawk and you were 14 or 15, yeah. not when you're...
2: Well, there's like seventy the, or whatever the doki punks was. as well. Yes, it's always, always quite good, isn't it? The Kalini punks. See, my idea actually for this was we could start a new campaign called the COVID Cut Challenge. Wow. Okay. So, uh, if you're stuck at home, you may as well. because my barn is going mental. It is. Yeah. Just take a clippers to it, shave it off, donate something to whatever charity you want, or to the HSC or whatever. And uh, and no way you go. Idea. I'm going to tweet it out later on. Let's tweet it
0: out later on. We'll see where we get. Do we get, as they say
2: in the vernacular, any traction on that? (laughs) Let's get it trending. You were talking about barbers the other day.
0: I was actually. I was talking about barbers in the context of the following, John, which is, it's amazing for people to think now, but for over 1,500 years, the most normal medical procedure was to leech people, to bleed people. Yeah. Okay? So going back to the Greeks, even going back to the Persians, right, you have evidence that they were using leeches to try and fix people who got sick. And the idea was they had a very rudimentary understanding of the blood system. They understood the blood system carried things around the body because they figured out from from basic, basic biology, right? But of course, they had no microscopes. So without microscopes, they couldn't see what was in the blood. Mm. So their idea was that the blood system, we know now that the blood system actually fights infection. But they thought the blood system carried infection.
2: Yeah. So the disease... Just like a series of pipes and exactly. tubes around Yeah, them.
0: exactly. So, so they thought, okay, well, if we can't get at the pipes, what we'll do is we'll get at the liquid within the pipes. So we will bleed... People who have diseases. Yeah. Right. Because their idea was the blood carries the bad thing, the disease. So if we believe the patient, there will be less blood and then there'll be less organs exposed for the blood yeah. and the disease to yeah. work yeah. on. Yeah. Right. So this is why you had leeches in the past. But of course, sometimes they use leeches, but leeches are hard to find, right? Go <laughs> looking for a leech and very hard for a tired man to find, right? So they used to just say, ah. Forget the leech, we'll just actually cut the lot, right? So they'd find a vein and just bleed people, right? And I was intrigued by this because I was doing a little bit of research about how actually it was about financial innovation in the this is how odd I am, in the late 18th century in America. Because what's interested me was how quickly the American Republic caught up with the British Empire. In terms of GDP per head, it's okay. very very rapid. Yeah, and one of the interesting things, which I'm going down this particular route, is their extraordinary innovation in finance. Right, so the American revolutionaries really understood money. They understood finance. They understood overdrafts. They understood capital markets. All that stuff. Right. Who was the leader in that? Well, Washington was, of course, was the was the president. Yeah, yeah. Okay,
2: but he, was, he wasn't an economist, was he? He
0: wasn't an economist. I'm, I'm trying to get to the root of it because what you see is a huge amount of financial innovation in or the, uh, the late part of the stage, Thomas Paine, the pamphleteer, who was actually a pamphleteer from Dublin. People forget that he's actually the the, the genius of the American Revolution, who wrote all the pamphlets to embolden American colonists to go against the Brits. Yeah. was actually started his pamphleting career in Dublin. In fact, Dublin of the late 18th century was was a hotbed, the United Irishmen, of liberal thought, progressive thought, all that sort of stuff. And, and their favorite economist was... Adam Smith, who got a bad rap in subsequent centuries. But in right. fact, at the time, he was very... Yeah. But anyway, I come back to this idea. So I was, I was looking at that. And then I got reading about the death of George Washington. George Washington died in December 1799. Yeah, But he died of tonsillitis. Right? He got tonsillitis. And he died because his doctors bled 40% of the blood out of him. They just kept cutting him. And he died, right? Yeah. Now, I am amazed by that. That's not not that long ago,
2: right? Yeah, it just seems bizarre, doesn't
0: it? It is bizarre that one of the greatest minds in the United States died, and their revolutionary leader died of common tonsillitis because his doctors bled him to death. And what I was thinking then was that bad medicine kills patients, but bad economics also kills economies. So basically what you have is a reasonably healthy Elderly man, Washington, is killed by his own doctors. And I was thinking from there about what's going on right now, that if we use the wrong policies, if we deploy the wrong policies, if we don't see the totality of the issue, we could have a Great Depression from COVID. And this week, the IMF warned about the Great Depression And this then got me thinking about medicine and bloodletting and leeching. But the reason I want to talk about the barbers (laughs) was that the barber, you know the barber's pole? Yeah. Which is a red and white pole. Yeah, yeah. The red is blood because the barber was the blood letter. Everywhere in the old days, you went to the barber and the barber, because what the barber had, he had blades and knives and scissors.
2: He was a dentist as well, wasn't
0: he? He was a dentist as well, but he was... His, his thing was cutting you with, with metal, with yeah. blades, right? And so the reason that the barber's pole is red and white is to signify the blood on the barber's apron, which was always white. <laughs> and the barber was the medic of the old days. And basically the job of the medic was to cut the patient in a vein or even an artery, if you really want to get rid of it quickly. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I was thinking about barbers this week, John. Yeah, Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd, exactly. <laughs> and the link between the barber and the IMF, John, is bad medicine in the late 18th century killed good people and bad economics in the early 21st century will kill good economies if we're not careful.
1: and Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: So explain to me then, what were the IMF? What's their approach? What were they saying this week? Well, after we lambasted
0: Christine Lagarde as being the biggest fraud in public life, <laughs> yeah. uh, who was the last head of the IMF, and uh, we come back to the, though The IMF are out, as they always do, saying there is a risk of a Great Depression, yeah, which, as a statement, is worth nothing to nobody, right? What they omitted to explain to us is the Great Depression was totally unnecessary. The Great Depression was a function of extraordinarily bad economic advice in the period after the 1929 crash. So what the IMF should have been saying is that if we were to follow the policies of the 1930s we will definitely have a depression they should also be saying the lesson from the 1930s is
2: don't do what they did let's do something totally different yeah of course they admitted to say that but the 1930s is totally different scenario to now not not really not really How do you so mean? so let's go back so the,
0: the 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 great depression what should have been a recession after the wall street crash So the wall street crash occurs For a variety of reasons. But one of the main reasons is that in the United States, interest rates were kept artificially low for a very long time. The reason interest rates were kept artificially low in the United States was to preserve what was called the gold standard. Right. That was a system of exchange rates that every country needed to have a currency that was backed by gold. Now, that's all very well if everybody starts at more or less the same position, right? But what happened in the 1920s is that two countries, one in particular, started borrowing enormous amounts of money. Germany, right? Right. So Germany after the First World War, what you get is the Allies demand reparations. When they demand reparations, it means the Germans have to produce much more than the Allies in order to actually pay the reparations and still have their own economy working quite well. Mm. So in order to do that, so they have hyperinflation, we can come back to that in a second, where they simply printed money to try, and the reason they printed money was to try and keep the factories going to yeah. generate, believe it or not, the hard currency, believe it or not, in the gold standard to pay the allies. So I can come back to that. But the idea then was Germany had to grow faster than any other country in order to pay reparations. Yeah. How do you grow faster? You borrow money, right? This is the way in which you grow faster, right? The way in which any country, like the reason the Irish had the great Celtic tiger, as I always said, it, was, it wasn't an economic miracle, it was an overdraft. You borrow loads, surprise, surprise, you grow faster because you've yeah. got more money in your arse pocket. So the Germans borrowed a hell of a lot. So the Americans, in order to try and keep peace in Europe, kept their own interest rates very low, right? So that German interest rates would stay very low and Germans would stay very low so they could afford to pay back all the money they borrowed. And who did they borrow the money from? Largely America. Yeah. Because America was the dominant yeah. okay. player. So... The flip side of that is if you're keeping your interest rates artificially low, as the Americans were, you're actually fueling your own economy enormously. And low interest rates, what they do, they encourage people to borrow. Yeah. So what happened is in the 1920s in the United States, you see this enormous amount of borrowing. For the first time ever, you see the emergence of a credit economy. Yeah. Now, one of the interesting things, how that happened, you know, Henry Ford. Yeah. Henry Ford's whole idea was that I will create a car that the average person can drive. Yeah. So poor people can drive. So his first idea was, how do I create a factory where the level of skills of the people is going to be lower so I don't have to pay them very much? So that's how he figured out this extraordinary automation, which is Ford's great legacy to the world, was he figured out how to make stuff cheaply. He therefore figured out how to pay people less than it would be if they were skilled tradesmen. But his objective was to get as many people working as possible that could buy this car, which is why he said, when people say, what color is the car? The Model T says you can have any color you want as long as it's black. Yeah. So be no frills. Yeah. It was like the uh, what's the, the Dacia duster oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. of its time. Anyway, Americans create this credit economy. The banks start lending. People start expanding. And again, you think the 1920s is this extraordinary period of innovation. Yeah. You have radios for the first time ever. Yeah. You have electricity, electricity for the first time ever. Right? These are you've know, telephones, telegrams. All these things are happening. You know, the Roaring Twenties was not just about people doing the can-can, the Great Gatsby. It was also a hugely innovative time, a bit yeah. like the last ten years, actually.
2: Yeah. Right. So the and, ancient, and it also was fueled by uh, lifting prohibition, lifting prohibition, and actually the interesting about prohibition. People who actually,
0: one of the many arguments for prohibition was that a sober workforce is a more productive workforce, which is actually right. Right, yeah. But they actually made this a big deal of the whole 1920s, was that sobriety leads to productivity, productivity leads to profit, profit leads to innovation, and innovation leads to a great
2: new world. And a big party. And a massive
0: (laughs) big party. And of course, the Great Gatsby is all fueled by what? By what? Property speculation. Yeah, yeah. You know, all those big houses in Long Island and Cape Cod and all those places, all to do with property speculation. So what you have, basically, the 1920s looks a bit like the noughties, our noughties. And the internet and Google and Apple, they're big companies like Radio City, like Bell Telecom, all these big American companies emerge at this stage. And they're all exactly like your Apples and your Googles. There's no difference, right? It's just a different technology. Mm. But it's all to do with networking people, bringing people together, creating this credit-driven consumer society. So then, what was the problem that? So, so basically what happens in all these sort of situations is not unlike what happened in Ireland in the, in, the, in the noughties and what's happening now with the COVID crash. Everybody was overborrowed, borrowing too much. And what happens once you borrow is your latitude for getting things wrong diminishes. So if you have no borrowing, as a general rule in life, right, you can kind of screw up and the implications aren't that dramatic. If you're heavily leveraged, you need every single thing to go just perfectly right Mm. in order for you to survive any sort of shock. Now, what happened, of course, in the 1920s was leverage took off. People were borrowing, borrowing on margin. People were buying stocks based not on the amount of money they had in their pocket but based on the price of the stock, and then they'd actually say... Was this the
2: average Joe doing it, though?
0: Or? Well, you know, the, the speaking of the average Joe, wasn't Joe Kennedy's great quip that he realized... He was a bootlegger, obviously. Yeah. JF Kennedy's dad was, yeah. A, yeah. was like a drug dealer. Exactly, like he was. He was selling booze himself, and, and he was very close to the mafia, and of course the mafia paid him back. We know that in, in the American election yeah, in 1962, was it yeah. when Kennedy was elected, where the mafia delivered... Chicago. Right. For Kennedy.
2: Yeah. Then then they took
0: him out. And then they maybe took him out. Then they maybe took him out. Allegedly. Because Bobby Kennedy went against them. Whereas old man Kennedy understood what side his brown bread was buttered on. Yeah. And it was buttered on the mafia side. (laughs) But let's go back. Okay. But Joe Kennedy did make that great quip when he said, I knew it was time to sell when the shoeshine boy told me what to buy.
2: Right.
0: That's the great quote. Yeah. Yeah. So Joe Kennedy, apparently, Joe Kennedy, actually, in fact, Irish Americans were incredibly involved in the speculation in the 19, in 1929. Hugely involved in it. And the reason was that Irish and Jews were not allowed work in the big stockbrokers. Really? Yeah, because the big stockbrokers were wasps, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, you know, the Peabody's and all the melons, actually, we were going to talk about, all these were sort of establishment families. Yeah. So what you found was, and you find this in all stock market, effervescence, that the people who take the most risks are those with the most to lose. Right. And what you found was that the Irish and the Jews who were excluded in New York from the old WASP families were the ones who set up the sort of dodgy brokers. And so Merrill Lynch comes out of that, the Lynch of Merrill Lynch. Oh, right. Okay. And Goldman Sachs comes out of that, the Goldman right. and the Sachs, right? So they're kind of fellas mooching all around the background. So yeah. it's, really,
2: it's really interesting anthropological stuff. It's quite a leap, though, isn't it, in less than... 70, 80 years from all the people coming off the boats that we spoke yeah, about
0: last week. Yeah, yeah. But so all those Irish-Americans who were involved in the, it was called spruiking. The Americans called spruiking. Which was basically uh, talking up a stock. Right. Uh, was it's called PR now, isn't that? It's called PR, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, uh, and the interesting, and the mechanism for talking up stocks was radio. Because that was the real okay. The, and the Paddy's controlled radio. They were Irish. Yeah. Oh, so Irish Americans were hugely involved because the Irish and the Jews were kept out of the brokerage firms and the Italians, but it was mainly Irish and Jews who were involved in this. this yeah. carry on. So Irish Americans were the real clique of speculators. There was a fellow called Charles Mitchell, right? Not the newsreader. Yeah. <laughs> another guy from Boston. Charles Mitchell. Right. A guy from Boston. A guy called yeah. Mike Meehan, another guy from Boston, right? These guys, there was a great guy called Bernie Smith. It was His nickname was Bernie Selim Ben Smith because he used to flog everything, <laughs> everything. Then there was Joe Kennedy, right? And yeah. all these guys were involved deeply in the 1929 crash. In fact, Mitchell and Meehan ended up, I think, taking their own lives in the mid-30s oh, right. because they'd lost, they so lost everything. But 1929, the thing crashes, right? The question then is how do you react? Once you get a stock market crash, when so many small people are involved and there's so much leverage, you have this ripple effect. And this is what we're having in COVID now, where the economy just stops. People panic. And what you get is the tremors of the original crash, if you do nothing, go on for years and years and years. This is the long
2: tail we spoke about before. This is back to
0: your long tail idea. So therefore, everything you do now, right now in the middle of COVID, are in 1929 1930 1931 in the middle of this slump is
2: absolutely essential to how you get out of it. So how do you know what is the, the right policy well, to take well, you, you know, know the it's, great... it's, hindsight is a great thing. But well, the great
0: know. thing is but the good thing is hindsight also equips us with foresight. Yeah. You say okay what happens in a slump like this? So the covid issue John it's a transitional loss not a permanent loss right? What's that So mean? this is this is important to comprehend right? You know, there's a lot of talk about, you hear about we're at war with this disease, right? yeah. And the use of metaphors of war and yada, yada, What happens in a war economically is you actually lose your infrastructure. Your public infrastructure is destroyed. So you lose total capacity yeah. because it's destroyed. So you think what happened to Germany and Japan after the Second World War, these countries were destroyed, right? So that's a permanent loss from a war. This is a temporary loss. This means we, everything that existed on the 9th of March still exists, Yeah, right? yeah. But the only difference is now unemployment is much higher. So you've got to get those people back to work as quickly as possible. And debts which existed on the 9th of March will not be paid. So you've got to figure out a way of actually smoothing out those debt repayments, right? What happened in 1929, this is why I say the Depression was unnecessary, was the world reacted to the Depression by not only not spending, but actually they accelerated austerity because they were obsessed by balancing the books. Right. Because again, Andrew Mellon,
3: yeah. who
0: was the American Treasury Secretary, whose grandparents came from Tyrone,
3: right.
0: but they were more WASPy, so he was part of the establishment. So you know Carnegie Mellon, the yeah. American university, that that family yeah. from Pittsburgh, Is that
2: Mellon Bank as well, Mellon Bank. So yeah. these are
0: really quite WASPy uh, characters. Yeah, his advice was, and he was Treasury Secretary was liquidate, 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 sell everything. The reason he thought this was, one, he had bad economics, but two, he also believed that it was a morality thing, that basically the stock market increase, and the debt should be expunged from the system, right? So he was doing what a lot of moralists do. Rather than using a crisis to figure out the future, they use a crisis to teach people a lesson, right? So he was like... Liquidate, liquidate. Now, so what happens? So who are they teaching the lesson to? To the great unwashed. All the paddies and the Jews and all the fake and Italians. Right, well, yeah, right, I mean, okay. this is, but this, there's always class war in, in yeah. all of these things, right? So anyway, let's come back to right now. So what he was saying is that if our advice is, their advice at the time was to sell everything. But what happens in deflation when the economy stops is if you sell, it just makes the downward pressure on prices worse. Yeah, And think about it. And then what you get is you get a deflationary mentality. So if you think prices are going to fall today, the last thing you say, to you say, mm, will I buy something today? And you say, no, if prices are falling, it's going to be cheaper next week and the month after, yeah, and the course. month after next year. So the very act of falling prices, which traditional economics says increases demand, doesn't increase demand, it decreases demand. Because you say, I'm not going to yeah. pay for something today, 100 quid, when I think it could be worth 70 quid i pay 70 quid in the future. So deflation gets into the system. Yeah, This is what we've got to avoid like the plague. And therefore, that's the first thing. So that's the deflationary downward spiral. This is where we need the central bank to... This is where we need the central yeah. bank. And this is where we need the governments to keep spending as much as possible. Because if you allow deflation, there's a downward spiral. So basically, prices fall. That means revenue for companies falls. If their revenue falls, they have to lay off people because they've got to cut costs to balance their books. Mm. If they cut costs and they lay off, lay off people, it means people's income falls. Then demand falls. Then prices fall even further. Then cost-cutting becomes even more aggressive. Then there's more layoffs. Yeah, right? vicious cycle. And anybody who's owed money by these companies doesn't get paid because they can't come up with... So you've got one is an f- economic shock, that yep. vicious cycle. Then you have what they call the leveraging shock. It's the idea of how do you pay back, right? And what happens is because all debts in a complex economy, like this, the economy is very complex, are all kind of related to each other. Like, you know, my mortgage is one outgoing I have, right? But let's say, for example, you have another bill and you have another bill and this and that. Everything's related to everything. So little companies' bills are related to each other. So if you default on me, I default on the next one. The next Mm. one, defaults on somebody else. And you get a massive default problem. And then, of course, what you get is that, and this is very opposite for us now, at the moment, the banking system in the West doesn't think it has a problem. Right. But if we get into a downward spiral of defaults, because we don't come up with a policy to underpin the banking system now and debts now, the banking system here will have another crisis and all around the world of the bad debts that occurred because of COVID, right? So... The question then is what to do. So the IMF omitted to tell us that the Great Depression was a result of bad economic policy, not the shock of the yeah. crash itself.. Yeah. And if in the Great Depression they had expanded the central bank balance sheet, paid for everything, borrowed money, there would have been no depression. If there'd been no depression, there'd been no Hitler, there'd been no second World War. There'd be no concentration camps. There'd be none of that stuff. Wow. Because, you know, we learn in history very lazily that Adolf Hitler came to power because of hyperinflation in Germany. And the hyperinflation destroyed the middle class. And that's all bullshit. That happened in 1923. Adolf Hitler came to power in 1933, a yeah. full decade afterwards. And the reason he came to power was in 1929, the Germans, wanting to preserve the gold standard again, big, big culprit in all this, decided to balance their books. So what happened was Germany goes into recession, tax revenues fall. They decide, you know what we're going to do? We're going to balance our books right now. So we're going to follow austerity, which sounds familiar to a lot of Irish people. That just makes the downturn much worse. In 1929, the Nazi party had 12 seats, 12 seats. Mm. By 1932, they had 42%. They came to power because of deflation, not inflation. And therefore, that's what I believe, is that liberal democracy in the world is now in danger unless we get this right, unless we spend, because what will happen is that deflation causes unemployment, causes absolute anxiety, and everybody votes for the guy who says, I'm going to make Britain great again or Germany great again or America or whatever.
2: And it just substantiates developments that we've already seen. A little aside but it's interesting looking at Trump you know I'm a little obsessed by Trump and Pence but, I know. but uh, listening to Trump this week and some people think that he is doing very much what you're talking about and he's priming his his base because he's tweeting out things like liberate Virginia liberate Michigan followed by preserve our second amendment which is the right to bear arms. Is he tweeting all that stuff out? He's now? Tweeting all that stuff out and then you have See I've switched off America. Yeah I know I I, I can't I'm just I I kind of love it and hate it. Yeah. But then the other part of it is is um then you have all these people out on the streets protesting that they want to go and get their roots done in their hairdresser and get Who doesn't? And Who doesn't want I, to get their roots <laughs> done? She get the clippers like me. And then you know and get grass seed and people are up in arms about it. They want the right to get out there and
1: show. My name is Mike Parrish, I'm from Bellevue, Michigan, and I'm for freedom.
2: Yeah, I'm a Christian, Um, so most Christians, we don't believe in living in fear. You know, God's in control of everything, and uh, we we just want to show our faith and,
1: and get things back to normal. It's time for our state to be opened up. We're tired of not being able to buy the things that we need, go to the hairdressers, get our hair done. It's time to open up.
2: It's just, it's beyond me. I mean, I I
0: think, you know, all we can say about America is
2: the messaging has been a little bit haphazard. Indeed it has. But I do think, as what you're saying, like you used the phrase before of, you know, lunatics on a leash. This next phase... Could be unless we get it right. Yeah,
0: yeah. The and lunatic off the leash. The, the, well, I mean, the most critical thing now is to make sure that the, the, the small business sector, which is the critical, yeah. critical. And we've talked about it before, but basically, small business employs the majority of people in almost every country. Small businesses are the businesses that run out of cash. Small businesses are the ones that yeah, default.
2: Absolutely.
0: Large businesses don't. So it's all about small business. Remember last week we were talking about this idea of how do you get small businesses to have an online presence? In fact, the website I was talking about last week, the, you know, the, the piece of software, yeah. wasn't clickandcollect.com. It's clickandcollection.com. Right. And lots of people emailed in uh, on Patreon and said, I can't find this. So if you want this little piece of software that can be applied to almost any service business, particularly retail business and restaurants and bars, it's clickandcollection.com, typical me. But cool. let's get back. So what you're talking about is Trump inflaming the grassroots yeah, in order to line them up to vote for him in November. Yeah, And he is incredibly nervous because, again, his whole assumption was he was going to fight the election against a background of the lowest rate of unemployment ever in the United States. It's now going to be the highest ever. Yeah, And his whole idea is, I'm the man for the economy. So my sense is that everything we see now is all him solidifying his base. And again, as you said, selling the idea that he managed to do the last time, that he is the savior of the little man against the elite. And it's the elite are shutting down Michigan, and it's the elite are taking away your guns, and it's the elite that says you can't get your roots done, and that's what he's doing. It's very clever. I sincerely hope very clever. It's very clever if you're a politician.
2: Yeah, but I think it's it's also he's been rumbled, and his greatest fear is failure, and it's been seen to be a failure. But But I've been watching. I've been watching Ozark. I've just got into it actually. You know Ruth in Ozark. Yeah, and Wyatt. Her yeah, brother? yeah. I've only started. The cousin. A, like, No spoilers The here. Longmores. Right.
0: When I think of the Donald, <laughs> I think of the Longmores in Ozark. I don't think I've got
2: there yet. Okay, okay. <laughs> but come here. The one thing he's always gone on about is fallback, is the markets. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about this because the markets now are on the up. They're rallying again. Yeah. But un- unemployment is still shooting up as well.
0: Yeah. This is a really interesting... Area, how right? come? What's actually happening so, there? So what is happening, if we go right back to the beginning, when I was a, a strategist, one of those great make y jobs in an investment bank, right? Yeah. <laughs> My many make y jobs, right? The whole idea was how do you interpret these signals from the market? So one of your rules of thumb was that the stock market rallying tells you there's going to be growth in the future. So more sales, more growth, more profits. Therefore, you can make legitimate These share prices are, you can see share prices rising. So that's the first thing. The other side of the coin was that if there was going to be more growth in the future, right, you would see the long-term interest rate rising. Yeah. The long-term interest rate is the rate of interest in the future. And obviously that will be a function of inflation. So if you get more growth, unemployment falls, wages rise, inflation rises, right? So basically what you should always see is the equity market rising the stock market rising and the bond market falling right, right. the bond market is the the long term interest rate it's long term ious issued by the american government 30 year bonds okay right. what we're seeing now is the stock market is saying we're going to have growth but the bond market is saying we're going to have a depression so one of the two has to be wrong right, right? so what the bond market the is saying is... the bond market is saying we are going to go into low growth High unemployment, low interest rates, low inflation, we're basically gonna have a recession or a depression. And the stock market is saying it's all gonna be gangbusters. So one side has to be wrong. The question is which one has to be wrong? Uh, how do we how do we find right. out? So what is happening right now? There's an expression in financial markets which is called don't fight the Fed. Right? So if the Federal Reserve is using its firepower to drive up the markets, right? Which would mean the stock market going up and it would mean because they're using the rate of interest to drive the stock market up, the bond market could go down, right? The idea is don't fight the Fed. Don't think you're cleverer than the Fed, right? And that's a rule of thumb because the central bank always wins. Why? Because it prints the fucking stuff. Right. Right, If you print the money, if you print the stuff, you win. That's the rule. That's why I keep saying we should use central banks, right?
2: Yeah. So right But now, Trump is
0: always at them. Yeah, because Trump needs to create enemies. Yeah. And in fact, do you remember Paul McCulley and I did this piece about the coming war between Trump yes, and the I Fed do.
2: about four years ago?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I always thought this was going to come. But let's go back to what's happening right now. So the stock market says we're going to have a V-shaped recovery, which means we're going to grow in the second half of the year. Right. The bond market is saying bond market saying we're going to have an L shaped recovery means we collapse and we go along the bottom right? right okay which is right now my disposition is kind of I'm kind of conflicted here because I do think that the covid crisis is temporary but only if we can stop the debt deflation part that we can stop small companies Going bust. Yeah. So in order for the stock market to be right, the central banks need to be doing helicopter money right now. In fact, the United States has announced a check. I think it's two grand to every citizen. But of course, the problem is your friend.
2: Yeah. He's signing every check. He's signing them all. <laughs> he's like the Charlie High yeah, yeah. of the Republican yeah. Party. It was all about me. Don't forget, I'm giving you this money.
0: Yeah. Vote early and yeah. vote often, as the Fina Fallers <laughs> yeah. used to say, right? But the, the principle is helicopter money. And once you break the principle, you can do it all the time. Yeah. So the stock market is betting that the deflationary threat will be small and modest and will recover. The bond market is betting that the deflationary threat will be long, egregious, and we will not recover for some time. Yeah. As we progress forward, we're going to see which one is the more likely. But the first hurdle is how do we come out of the lockdown? So the stock market is betting that we come out early. Yeah, that we go back to normal. Yeah, that there's a release program for various sections of the community, and in time a virus, our vaccine is, is found, and everything's hunky-dory. The bond market is saying, hold on a second, the Spanish flu had three iterations.
2: You mean the Kansas flu?
0: actually is the Kansas flu. It actually came from Kansas. Yeah. Yeah, it did. If you want
2: to play Trump's game, that's Do it. Do you know where it
0: came from? What's Kansas? Fa- came, it came from Arkansas, actually. Arkansas? To Kansas. And why did it come from Arkansas? Go what's, on. What's Arkansas famous for? Uh, Hogs. Hogs. It is. The so it was, of, it was swine flu? It was swine flu. Right. And it came during the... Clinton also
2: comes from Arkansas.
0: He does also <laughs> come from that's Arkansas. That's all that was in my head yeah, there, actually. Yeah, yeah, But the Arkansas State University football team, which I had to suffer through, which is American football. If you ever, ever oh, get invited s- to American football, never go. Hours long. Notre Dame. I was in Notre Dame, you know, yeah. that place in Indiana. Weird place. Weird place as well. Weird place. And they were playing the Hogs. The right. Hogs were from <laughs> Arkansas. But you're right. So basically, it was swine flu that was there was a, a call up in 1917 for American troops in the First World War. Yeah. They joined after the Lusitania was torpedoed. In Cork, yeah. Oh, exactly, off the grid, right. And so basically a, lots of country farm boys were called up, right? Uh, because the Melons and the Carnegies, they don't do the fighting shit, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> they, they don't do that sort of carry on. It's all, the, it's all, you know. And of course, the backbone of the American army has always been the, the Scots-Irish. Yeah. Who yeah. all come from Kentucky and Arkansas and all those places. And it came from Arkansas and it got into the American army in Kansas in an American military base. And those soldiers got on military transports, yeah. ships. They ended up in the Western Front. They gave it to the Brits and they gave it to the French. And believe it or not, French prisoners gave it to the Germans. Yeah. And the reason it's called the Spanish flu is the Spanish were neutral and they were the only people who reported on it. Because the French, Germans and Brits did not want to terrify their people by saying our troops are getting killed by disease, not by the enemy. Right. Okay. That's okay. That's goes. how I didn't
2: know it was But it, came, it comes from It comes from so you could say the Arkansas flu. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but just to come back to this, so we are, regardless of who's right around the bond markets or the or the, yeah. the stock markets, it does depend on how quickly we get over this. Exactly. And and vaccines and, and all that kind of stuff. So if we take it as say we go with the stock markets and we're going to come out fairly soon. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. How What would that look like? How should we really, really come out of this Really critical
0: question. Really good question, right? Because remember we talked last week about the antibody tests. Yeah. So the first thing that has to go right for the stock market to be right is antibody testing has to show us that the rates of infection are much higher than we think and the rates of recovery are much higher than we think. So yeah. consequently, the rates of mortality are low. And if you wanted to be schooled in this. Go online and listen to Angela Merkel this week where she explains exactly with enormous German precision about exactly what is needed to flatten the curve. It's an amazing thing. I tweeted it out. I got it. It was sent to me by somebody I know in Germany with the English translation under it. It's beautiful. Very, very interesting. But first of all, the antibodies have to show that the rate of infection is low. Yep. And the second thing then is once that happens, the question is how do you start releasing people for the lockdown? And this becomes very tricky because certain parts of the community will have to stay locked down for much longer, like the vulnerable. Yeah, But certain parts of the society should be released. So, John, one thing we probably know is that we won't all be released on the same day. Right. Right? So the lockdown... Will be phased and staggered, right? So the idea is you keep the most vulnerable, like your mum and my mum. Yeah. In the rage
2: how is Karma? She's good. She's good. She's bored out of her head, but she's trying hard. Yeah, no, it's and she's getting there. I'd say it's the same with your mum. Alice, so. Alice
0: is in good form. Uh, she she's behind the window, right, all the time, all the time. She says to me, "I'm not getting that fecking thing," <laughs> right, which is great, good for yeah, her, you absolutely. know. Absolutely, and she's absolutely right because, um, so I go up to see her and she's in behind the window. And we're chatting away, yeah. And then every now and then I get the the milk and cheese, and yeah, bread yeah, yeah. The, yeah. We, but she's in she's in good form, you know. But it's good to hear. Actually, I asked her last week. I said, if this goes on for three or four more weeks, and she said, then then she'd be a bit fed up with the whole thing. Yeah, because she's been on her own for five weeks now. Yeah, you know, yeah. on the phone and everything. Absolutely, yeah. No, I know. Same with Mama. And, uh, on Tinder and all that. Stuff. <laughs> 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 I saw you on the Tinder. <laughs>
2: But exactly, I, I I go down to mum and we kind of sit in the driveway. Yeah. And, and uh, shout at each other. Yeah, yeah, that's all it is. Yeah. No, she's cool. delighted. Anyway, um, so let's just think of the stagger. So over
0: 70s or 75s or whatever they decide is, will be the last to be released. Yeah. Okay. But obviously the first to be released are gonna be the young. Now, what you see from the all the evidence is younger people have suffered most in terms of unemployment because they tend to be largely in jobs which are less secure, jobs which are in the hospitality industry, yeah. Okay, jobs in the service industry, in retail, all those. So they've lost their jobs. And a lot of those companies, as we always keep saying, are companies that don't have a huge amount of money. So what we noticed last week, even that Pascal Donahue yeah, increased the amount of the subsidy the government was going to give from 70% of wages to 80 Or 85%, because obviously lots and lots of small companies don't have the 15% of the wage to give, right? So what we see is young people are much more likely to have been badly affected. They're much more likely to have lost their jobs. And they're much more likely to be in those sectors that mightn't recover quickly. For example, hospitality and tourism or whatever. That's the first thing. We also know from American data, this long-term data, that your 20s are incredibly crucial for you in terms of your lifetime earnings, that if you fall behind the average in your 20s, you never recover, which is kind of shocking. Really? Yeah, that's the American. So Americans have these things called longitudinal studies, which means they've been collecting data for a generation, two generations. And what they see is that in your, most people think, oh, my 20s, I can find myself and and all that sort of stuff, which is true because you have to. But the data show that if in your 20s, Particularly your late twenties, you haven't started a career, not in the traditional sense, but it, that's actually meaningful, and you're still mooching around. That your wages never recover, and that's driven for two. It's really interesting. It's two ones. One is your sense of your own worth yeah. doesn't recover. That's really deep. It's something that economists are really bad at. They're all, you know you know economists will say oh well, your your human capital has been diminished, but right. actually. When you go into an interview, you don't have the confidence to ask for the right amount of money. So you bid against yourself because you actually undervalue yourself. This is what the American data yeah, is Yeah,
2: I can understand that, and actually. Yeah, it's really, yeah and it's, it's really deep, you know. Even as a freelancer, it can be very hard to put a value on a project or and a And the gig problem
0: for you and I, were freelancers. So my golden rule is never, ever, ever negotiate with yourself. So when okay. somebody says, yeah. this is a real to you, Johnny, after all our years together, right? <laughs> when somebody says, what's your price? You say, you tell me. Right. Because when somebody says, what's your price? You're immediately negotiating against yourself. Yeah. you say, well, I want 100 quid. They'll say, no, I'll give you 80. And already you're at 60. And you haven't even started. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Okay, I'm going to use that. So never, ever give a price. <laughs> ever. Because then you're... It
2: depends in- on the kind of gig you're in. Yeah,
0: like if you know people well and it's, you know. But I mean, so you can imagine if your self-worth is low because in your 20s you're not achieving what you want to achieve. Yeah. And the second thing of course is that the market looks at you differently. The other way is the easiest way to get a job is from a job.
2: Yes, of course. You know yep. always, yep.
0: you know, that's like, you know, having haven't been fired so many times now John, I've got a sensitivity to it, right? <laughs> I'm unemployable. But you know, if you have that feeling that you're going to get the chop,
2: yeah, go ahead. Buy
0: yourself ahead. about 2 or 3 months. Yeah. Time and go out and look for a job and, you know, spoof like BGAs. <laughs> what was the word you used? Spookers. <laughs> Spookers. Well, I do remember, I was a in London, but I loved in London working there years ago, was London is full of over-promoted Irish people. Right. I always noticed that when I was in the city in London, the place was full of paddies terrified that they'd be found out. Yeah. Every company had a paddy in the corner office <laughs> saying, say nothing, <laughs> say nothing. So, but those things. So anyway, to come back to the, why it's so important for the younger people to go back to work is I think we should release younger people, let's say under 35. So just take that in general, mm. like, you know, first before anybody else. And I also believe there's a big youth economy that has, that has collapsed. Bars and restaurants and clubs and all these sort of things, Right. And people want to go back to work. They want to start earning again. And so I think what will, the really interesting decisions in the next few months is who gets let out first.
2: You and I obviously never get let out. No, I'm quite happy to stay (laughs) in How's the shed actually? It's great. It's great. It's getting more use now than ever before. It's great. I have this image of you. (laughs) I tell you, it's, it's, uh, if you want to get an image of John,
0: the mohawk is gone. The skinhead is in. It's Ozark.
2: I'm getting into that. It's
0: Ozark. It's the caravan in Ozark in the back of the house in Stilorgan. Herd and abuse at Trump. That Trump is and
2: Pence, yeah. And Pence.
0: So let's think about what, what, what it could look like. I've actually done some of the numbers in this, right? So if you look in Ireland, there are now, according to the CSO, there's 1,043,948 adults under 35 in this country. Right. Okay? They are much less susceptible to disease they're much more likely to be asymptomatic and actually have it contracted and it hasn't given them any bother at all. But they still can. They still can. But look, somebody's got to be released first. Of these, 814,000 are in the labour force and 94% of these people are employed. That means 6% of those in the labour force under 35 are not employed or unemployed. So the total figure of employed people in the labour force is 700 Sixty-two thousand three hundred. That's a lot of people. So you think, okay, that's the labour force as was in March. Now that has changed. We don't yeah. have the figures, right? You can't release people who live with their parents because they'll bring the disease back in. Yes. Right? Yeah. So then, how many people under thirty-five live at home? And what you find is it's three hundred and eighty-eight thousand six hundred and thirty people under the age of thirty-five live at home, and of these people. One hundred and seventy-three thousand, eight hundred and twenty-six are working. So, in order to give you an idea of how big the labour force could be if they were to be released now, yeah. the youth labour force, you take away those people who live with their mum and dad. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Right. Who live with their mum and dad, and are working, who have to stay away from the working population. Yeah. And you get a figure, right, which is basically. 763,300 minus 173,826 you get a figure of 588,000. So it's a lot of people yeah. who are under 35 who live not with their parents who can't who can still isolate from their parents and who could go back to work whenever the state decides.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I think now look if you just think about it the average wage of the under 35 is 36 grand. Right. So if you multiply 36 grand by 580,000, you get a massive injection of money into the economy. Right. And that's what we're talking about. That's how it's going to end. Like the idea is it's going to end some way. Yeah. And it's going to end with some part of the population going to work. And I think a reasonable place to look at is to look at the under 35s as being people who can go out to work and socialize. Yeah. And be constructive and be creative and do all the things first. And I think it's a large section of the
2: population. They're amazing numbers, actually. So how do you think this is going to play out then? Well, you know, I've 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 no idea because again, you know, that great t-shirt. I'm not an
0: immunologist, but right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, so you know, we have to get our friend Luke on the on the line to give us. But obviously at some stage, you know, all the indications are that the curve flattening is working. Yeah. That the transmission has dramatically reduced, that what we hoped we were going to get to, or where we hope we are going to get to, we're, yeah. we're close to it. So let's work backwards, right? If the stock market is right, the American stock market, it's predicting an early recovery, it's predicting a recovery that's reasonably robust mm. by next autumn, then it, by definition, has to imply the release of young workers. Has yeah. to. Because okay. you can't have growth without people coming back in. You can't have the economy working. And if we even working back further, we were talking about if the helicopter money is applied now and if the government spending is applied now and we don't worry about spending and we basically borrow as much as we have to and then we monetize it all, we'll preserve the companies, the small companies that we need to preserve. So there is a pathway out of this. You can see there is a pathway out of this. But the interesting thing, it all depends on the young. And if you think about in art and sport and music, we're very happy to cede leadership to the young. Yeah, like think about it. You yeah, know, yeah, the, the, you know, we're listening to bands. You know, they're all kids. We're listening. We go. We look at art. You know, the, there's this thing that basically, with the exception of Picasso, most great art was made in the people in the 30s. You know, Joyce yeah. wrote Ulysses when he was 38. Yeah, yeah. You know, these there is a period in your life where you are most
2: creative. But well, as you said before, it's it's that the 20s seems to be the huge creating music anyway. You know, all the great musicians and great songs are written in their 20s. Do you know what I was reading about Paul McCartney and the Beatles? They were 26 or 27 yeah. and it was done. Yeah. It was over. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I mean, that is amazing. But no, also Kurt Cobain died at 27. You know, there is yeah, that, that like Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 27 yeah. thing. Yeah, so you know, absolutely. So, so basically we are depending
0: now on the young to drag the economy out, right? yeah. And you were like this. Many years ago, I interviewed Tony Benn, the great English socialist, yeah. many, many years ago. And he was well on. And I probably looked younger than I was at the time. And he confided in me. We were in his house doing the interview. And he was right. really quite posh, yeah. socialist. And he said to me, I were talking about generation things. And he said, young man, he said, I'll tell you something. He said, you know, the greatest conflict is you and me. He said, the, youth, the old and the youth, you know what we have in common? We're bullied by the fucking middle age. <laughs> <laughs> what a great quote. The young and the old are bullied by the middle age. He's right, though, isn't it's he? It's a really good quote. Okay. So we're depending now on the young and in all creativity, the young are doing their thing. Creative, energetic, what I would say is iconoclastic youth are going to drag the world out of this.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny, though, because there's a lot of. You know, p- people are handling this differently, and some are getting more and more anxious, and which is concerning. The other half are kind of become more and more creative. Like I believe Lucy's doing loads of writing. You're Lucy, yeah.
0: Well, she actually released a track, yeah. just now, just over the weekend. Uh, she is sitting at home writing. She's on the piano. She's on the guitar. I yeah. mean, it's amazing to hear. I she mean, the has house an is
2: incredible voice, and she, yeah, yeah, and she's she's incredible voice.
0: Well, listen, I know she's going to kill me. Will we actually?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Will we play as out? As you say, music is written to be heard. It is written to be heard. We play out uh, on
0: this track, which is Lucy and her mates Maliki, who are two guys, Hugh and Matthew. Yeah. And they've been working together for years. And it's a song that Lucy wrote, and it's called Fair Play. So why don't we
2: uh, yeah, go for play
0: it, it out? Because as I said, the youth are going to save us. <laughs> so here we are, played out... Uh, a song written in our kitchen hope you like it talk to you next week
3: I've been drinking just way too much thinking I adore you please will someone pass me a cup I'm about to pour you and I don't want to waste your time I've been running around in your mind I've been drinking way too much Drinking, drinking way too much
1: because you sippin' on your gold dutch some call it rough but i just call it low touch compliment you as a toes touch in a reebok hard fermenting as i rolled up your knee sucks your teardrops collect on the tear of your red top love so deep had me hitting bedrock the lead stops until i get my head on liquid love on the rocks cup of tea with some scotch describe your day and your sucks. i'm addicted to you a victim of my own plot Depict a life I forgot I'm sick of righting my wrongs A list of love is enough Drink what was left in my cup Symbolizes when to give up Somewhere when that Is a lesson you can pick up I'm sick of Being such a sucker For a kiss of your lips A tonic and gin The saga begins I want to pretend Contempt for my sins Flipping predicaments Sniffing in cigarettes Kissing through a silhouette You'll soon forget the moon Reflects the man you used to know. Charms about her arm and with the rapid growth. The midnight hope. A dip dye choker, she sips a smoke, lips are provoke. We risk a moment below our noses. Trickle of roses and a pocket full of pones. Baby drinking too much, yeah, I, I guess been she knows.